Turn with me again to Philippians uh, chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 8 and 9 this morning. I, uh, growing up, there were a few responsibilities or regular parts of my life uh, that determined the routine of my day. I'm a very routine-oriented person. There was the uh, routine I had every morning of getting up and caring for the animals we had. I lived on a farm. I grew up on a farm. So there were cats, dogs, cows, horses, uh, any number, any combination over the years, a variety of that. So, so it was my responsibility as the youngest of five, the youngest boy, to do a lot of those chores. Uh, as well, there was in the evening time, I was responsible to uh, clear up the dinner table every night. Um, I was also responsible for violin practice, piano practice, lots of different things I had to do. And then there was also Sports Center. Um, and that was a small part of my day that I was able to choose that part of my routine somewhat. Uh, it was a tradition that my brother and I would watch Sports Center while we ate breakfast before school. My parents were moving around in, in, in a way that we kind of had that time to ourselves. And uh, my favorite part of the broadcast uh, was the top 10 plays, or the not top 10, uh, which is a fantastic addition to their lineup. Um, it would usually take place at the end of the broadcast, uh, and you could look forward to it. It was, it was on a, an hourly cycle, and in many ways this morning, we're looking at a kind of top 10 list of Christian morality, and it's really difficult in so many ways to, <clears throat> to preach a list in Scripture. Lists kind of terrify me. Um, you know, genealogies uh, in the Old Testament, uh, any kind of listing in the New Testament. It just is difficult to work through. Um, but convinced that preaching is a, a means whereby we learn to read Scripture well. Uh, what is God saying about Himself? And what is our response to what God is saying about Himself? Uh, we approach this list because there is something very important for us here and now, here in Rollsville, North Carolina. Uh, God is speaking to us in verses 8 and 9 of Philippians chapter 4 about an issue that's very misunderstood and in many circles completely ignored today, and that's virtue. Uh, that's why I titled the sermon, in fact, this morning, Living Virtuously Together. You'll notice a theme from the, the previous two sermons. Uh, it's kind of nice to have these three fit pretty well together. So living virtuously together, our text, Philippians 4, 8, and 9. And while you're turning there, if you haven't already made your way there, scrolling or turning, whatever you have to do to get there, uh, this is the big idea. This is what we're going to focus on this morning. Living virtuously together brings God's peace. Very simple. Living virtuously together brings God's peace. So read with me this morning, Philippians 4, 8, and 9, and we'll, we'll dive right in. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Our text today includes a rich list of moral requirements found at the back end of a discussion of unity. And when I initially approached the passage, you may be wondering the same thing. How does all this fit together, right? It fits together in this way. 
as we stand firm together, which is what we talked about a few weeks ago, as citizens of heaven, as we work well together, radically dependent on God alone, we are driven to live virtuously together, united by the God of peace. Our passage today also provides two descriptions of this virtuous life and the pursuit of Christian morality. First, we find this point in verse 8. Very simply, living virtuously together requires focusing our mind on God's character. Living virtuously together requires focusing our mind on God's character. The list of virtues that Paul asks the Philippians to think about, which is the the last part of verse 8, is not a distinctly Christian list. Uh, In fact, these notions could be embraced by a lot of morally upright people. I mean, if we made this list to people today, it's likely many people would agree with us. Yeah, we should be these things. Uh, And even these six six virtues that are listed here are were held high in Paul's day. The Greco-Roman culture uh, often had this moral thinking, these moral philosophers that made a list of virtues, civic virtues, and this was a list. And the question then comes, well, if most people are sent to this list, why is Paul giving it to us? And the reality is that often the definitions of these terms are what's important because we can talk about what's right, we can talk about what's just, But what is a Christian definition of what is right or true or just? This list as we'll go through it today. So I hope to unpack each of the words, and I'm scared of doing going word by word, but it's helpful. It's what the text does, so I'm forced to do that. Uh, So you can blame it on God, maybe. I'll cop out in that way. Uh, But I'm also going to provide a short definition of each word because so many of these ideas are just really rich and deep in ideas that are so important for developing a virtuous life Uh, the demands of the gospel for each one of us. So, beginning in verse 8, this idea with true, true. The verse verse 8 begins with this comprehensive term in many ways that should dictate all of our life's pursuit, and that is truth. Uh, This term includes truth in thought, disposition, and action. We often think of truth as simply like ideas or concepts, or in school I often think of a conveyance of of concepts, but it's so much more than that. It's, It's much deeper than that. Uh, True things are morally upright, they're dependable, they're real, rather than desired. Often we, in our culture today, uh, we, many people, and we're even tempted, I think, in our our lives to define truth for ourselves individually, uh, or even just what's popular, popular sentiment. And that's not really what Paul has in mind here. Uh, Paul has in mind, well, Francis Schaeffer has borrowed this term, this true truth idea, And that's what Paul is pointing out here. Positively, we are commanded to think over, to ponder, to buy into what is true, what lines up with God's character. Or negatively, uh, meditate on ideas, actions, or emotions in which there is no falsehood. So you can say that positively you are supposed to think about these true things about God's character and you are to to think about things in which there is no falsehood. So here's a, a short working definition of true. Sincere thoughts, actions, and and I'm sorry, sincere thoughts, attitudes, and actions in alignment with God's character. So I I bring out two important points in that uh, ideas in that definition where uh, if I simply said thoughts, attitudes, and actions in alignment with God's character, I think we would be tempted to weasel out and and follow the rules. That sounds too much like rule keeping to me, frankly. So I I throw that word on the beginning, sincere, because there is an intent 
That's very, very important in truth, a truth-filled life. So there are sincere thoughts, attitudes, and actions in alignment with God's character. Then Paul uses this word noble here in my translation. I think this word needs to make a comeback. Noble, it's a pretty cool word. Uh, how many of us have used the word noble recently? I know I haven't really. Maybe I have more since I've been studying this passage. But uh, the ESV uses the word honorable. Uh, but I, I prefer noble simply because I like to say it. Um, and so on the back of the command for truth, a truth-filled life, Paul makes us the com- command to pursue what is noble, whatever is noble. This word indicates things worthy of respect or honor. In the New Testament, this is, this is a, a very critical way to understand this term, it's primarily used of church leaders, uh, where such persons are urged to be respectable. So we, we think of the lists of the qualification lists in 1 Timothy and Titus. There's a sense of respectable to those inside the community and those outside the community. So you're beginning to get a picture of what this, this sense of noble means. Thus, the command here is, a reflect, is for reflection on things worthy of respect. Uh, fundamentally, things that are fitting for a Christian to think about. Thoughts and meditations that lift the mind and the heart to what is noble. Ultimately, God himself. So definition, noble. Moral dignity, which elicits reverence for God. Moral dignity, which elicits reverence for God. The third term here, uh, right, uh, the ESV uses just, which is actually a, a probably a more helpful translation. Uh, Paul calls the Philippians to seek what is right or just, and there might be a tendency to think, well, how are these terms really nuanced between these first three ideas? And, and it's in this way, think of it as not necessarily what is just, but justice. All of us, I think, have an inborn desire for justice. We want what is what's fair in so many ways. That's maybe the more popular way to say it. But we, that's a good desire. We should want to, things to be just for the world. It's uh, social justice pursuits, uh, our work with first choice pregnancy. I mean, that, that's a, a good Christian desire to seek to protect those who are marginalized. Uh, widows and orphans, that's a common command throughout the New Testament for the church to care for widows and orphans. And that's the idea here, a sense of, of justice. Protection for the oppressed, as on earth, so as on earth, so as it is in heaven, so on earth. Uh, that's Paul. That's Paul's desire here. That's what he taps into, and God Himself is righteous and just, and He loves this character in His people. Psalm eleven, verse seven says, "For the Lord is righteous; He loves justice. The upright will see His face." So here's my definition of right. The desire to fulfill all obligation to God, to others, and to ourselves. And that's justice, in a nutshell. The desire to fulfill all obligations to God, to others, and to ourselves. Paul then moves on to this, this pure. Uh, when Paul references purity, I think each one of us, our mind probably goes immediately to sexual purity, right? Uh, yet the command here is not limited to sexual purity, but extends to all areas uh, to be, from speech and action to be morally pure. Uh, the word translated here is translated in other places by the terms chaste or innocent or upright. So the idea is our focus should be on that which is not tainted at all with any evil. Uh, those things that wouldn't stain our conscience or our, ourselves or the community of faith. 
think those things set apart from the indignity of, or stain of sin and set apart to a life of godliness. You know, I don't believe our age is, or our modern context is any more consumed with uh, the morally depraved or sexuality. Uh, it's just that we live in an age of unprecedented access. You know, I, I'm preaching from an iPad this morning, which is great. It's wonderful. But sadly, I have the capability on the same device uh, to access smutty, disgusting, disgraceful content. And that's a shame. Each one of us uh, probably have a cell phone. Uh, we have more computing power than the, the Apollo landing, right? I mean, that's the, the, funny, the funny way to describe it. We have more computing power in our cell phones than they did to land on the moon. And yet we often use those devices to tear people down, uh, to look at, at impure things, to say impure things. Uh, it's very easy with the click of a mouse, tapping on a trackpad, the swipe of a touchscreen, to see, to take in, to participate in what is evil, what isn't pure. And so this call for purity is timely, is very timely for us here and now today. So here's a very simple definition. Pure, free from moral error or sin. It's quite simple. doesn't make it easy, but it makes it simple. Purity builds directly into this next concept, uh, loveliness, whatever is lovely. Uh, this word acts as a combination of love and respect, love and nobility, to use my fun word again, the word I like, should think should make a comeback, uh, love and admiration. Uh, today, I think we're tempted to reduce, uh, again, this popular sentiment of personal preference in our, because we live in a free society. Uh, we have the ability to choose, which is fantastic, but we often are tempted to reduce love and beauty to personal preference. Uh, we live in a consumerist society where I think a primary virtue of our society is individualism, our ability to choose for ourselves, choose our own destiny. And it's an idol. It confuses our senses, and it destroys our walk with Christ. And it's much, much more than sentimentality or individual preference that Paul has in mind here. Uh, those things I want, reflecting an autonomous internal standard or a popular standard of beauty, that's not, that's not what he has in mind here. It has an external referent, a much more sustainable, rich, and satisfying beauty and loveliness is on display here. Very practically, it's the love of Christ, Christ himself sweetening our disposition, changing our desires, and defining our relationships. So here's a summary. A definition, lovely or loveliness. Expressions, thoughts, and actions of love which inspire more love. Expressions, thoughts, and actions of love which inspire more love. And I know I'm not necessarily supposed to use the word in the definition, but pardon me in this moment. Uh, I did it, and I think it, I think it works well. So lovely. Admirable. Admirable here refers to thoughts or actions which deserve, deservingly so, have a good reputation. Uh, think Proverbs 22.1. A good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. Admirable things are sought after, 
and set up as worthy of emulation or pursuit because of their inherent value. You don't have to declare the value of them. They inherently have value. Uh, and there's a nuance here that, that's helpful, especially for us today. Uh, there are particular actions or habits. I've referenced this several times in the listing here. There are particular actions or habits that might be commended by the world or we might really like or want or desire or feel good about. Uh, simple things. Television shows, books, friendships, a joke at work that we might think are funny or, or, or good or worthy of praise, admirable, and that's not really what they are because they lack the true or better definition of, of God's character. That's not in reference here. God's character is always in view. What is admirable, what is inherently valuable is God's character. And if the things that we have around us that are not, do not line up and align to God's character, they are not to be pursued. Uh, Paul's referencing what is in alignment with the highest standards that completely lack moral compromise. Truths in relation to God and man which exemplify Christ and possess inherent worthiness. So admirable. Praised by God and highly spoken of by other people. And then Paul provides a summary idea. Um, whatever is excellent, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy. And most scholars believe Paul is drawing from a list of well-known moral virtues. I mentioned that earlier, that he's likely using words that would be well-known in this audience. And they're well-known words to us. I think we have ideas already in our minds when I read these words, when you read these words. And it's likely true. In fact, Paul uses this term excellent here, and it's the highest level of virtue, the highest level of moral excellence. And that's, in his day, that's when, when they said excellence, it was the highest level of moral attainment. And so there is a sense where Paul is calling to mind, yes, there is a highest level of moral attainment. There is this excellence that exists, albeit it might not be the excellence as you know it, what reference? What, what is excellent? Well, chapter 2 of this book of Philippians is the referent. Christ is the foundation. So the exposition of morality and virtue, is not, it should not focus on, on self-made definitions or popular level definitions, but on Christ himself. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Should it be contemporary culture's moral norms or standards? No. Should it be whatever works, whatever is effective, whatever feels good, or whatever has just happened, just allow ourselves to kind of just live our life, not really thinking about the, the implications of what we're doing? No. Christ's mindset. A moral standing that goes above and beyond even the most comprehensive man-made list of rules. It's a person and coupled with praiseworthy, so Paul says excellent and praiseworthy, we are called to meditate, to pursue moral excellence and all those things that earn the praise of God and men. It's always interesting to me as well when I find a place in Scripture where the author puts the descriptors before the verb of the sentence, and Paul does this here. Paul ends the sentence with an imperative, a command to think. I find myself really enjoying that idea, probably because I'm a student and I think a lot and I've made much of 
thinking my married life has all been. I've been a student the entire time I've been married. I hope my wife feels okay with that. We'll find out later probably. Uh, But why does he say the mind? Why does he say think here? Well, in the Greco-Roman context, the mind was the seat of the individual, the seat of the self. Uh, To a Jewish audience, Paul would likely have added the heart, so the mind and the heart. Maybe that calls to mind the Decalogue. Essentially, this demand for us here is to define our very seat of being, our state of mind, our heart, whatever word you need to choose, what you focus on, our disposition, on Christ and Christian virtue. We must use this list as, as a kind of grid for making decisions for the things we pursue, the aspirations we have, the seat of our judgment. So when Paul uses the mind, it's a seat of judgment, desires, They must be captivated by Christ and a desire for virtue in an age obsessed, I think, with indiscriminate freedom. The command follows the the content because the center of morality is not in our ability to fulfill God's demands of morality by ourselves. We need the righteousness of Christ. We need the gospel. So we think on these things because we have the empowering presence of the Spirit. So it begs uh, a number of questions here for us this morning. What is your truth? Uh, Do you try to make truth for yourself? It's often what we do. Or do you accept God's revelation in his son and in scripture? What is your truth? What is truth to you? It's popular in culture today to define truth for yourself. I think Disney's to blame. Uh, maybe I'm early in the princess process, but um, with two little girls and a third one on the way, don't know what I'm going to do. Thank God for Simon, my son. Um, you know, Disney princesses, uh, hold on to your dreams because your heart will never lie to you, right? I mean, that's, that's the idea. Uh, if you hold on tightly enough or wait long enough, the dreams that you dream will come true. And I think Disney kind of hit on a chord that unfortunately many of us, they kind of just put into words what many of us think and feel most of the time. We really want these things. How can that be bad? I mean, it's what I want. You're saying that what I want is bad? I I am being a little bit silly with Disney, um, but it's one small example of how we are tempted away by competing claims of truth. Uh, tempted to look within ourselves to find goodness, to define truth and goodness, morality for ourselves. Tempted to look around and what, what's everyone else doing, what's, what works, what, what's popular. If we can't look within and we can't look around at everyone around us, where can we look? And God declares two important sources of truth for the Christian, Jesus Christ and the scriptures. Jesus states in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Then he also declares in John 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Look to Christ. Look to the scriptures. It also begs the question, what do you dwell on? So this idea of thinking. Uh, what, do you, what turns over in your head a thousand times throughout the day? 
What can't you get out of your head? Well, God calls us here to think about true things, not about the false. Think about noble things, not the disgraceful. Think about whatever is right, not what is wrong. Think about whatever is pure, not what's sleazy. Think about the lovely, not the, per- the perverse. Think about the admirable, not the despicable. Whatever is excellent, that all-encompassing term, think about these things. Don't get these things out of your head. Get them in your head until they don't leave. How do these commands make you feel? Are these the characteristics of your thought and emotional life? The television you watch, would this describe it? Well, books or articles you read, speech, the way you talk to your wife or your husband or your children, the jokes you laugh at, the things you think are funny, the desires you dwell upon and encourage and foster, your guilty pleasures. Such a fascinating term. I've never really understood. Uh, It's a strange yet honest description. (laughs) Guilty pleasures. What are your guilty pleasures? Don't allow the guilty pleasures of your life to crowd out the divine bliss that can be found only in Christ. So Paul introduces a discussion of virtuous living by giving a description, a list uh, of the center where our center of being, our mind, ought to be focused. Living virtuously requires focusing our mind on God's character. Yet virtue is so much more than simply thinking ideas, dwelling on righteousness. It is to be lived out. And that's the second idea this morning, found in verse 9. Living virtuously demands living out God's character. Very similar to to the call at the end of chapter 3, Paul calls to to bear the godly testimony in verse 9 of shared morality found in in believers, uh, worthy to be emulated, things that people do and say and and act out that we should pursue as well. Uh, In the end, we should all be seeking to emulate a person, so this idea of Jesus Christ, that is. So this idea of pursuing after other mature Christians shouldn't be that unnerving to us because we're all seeking after Christ. Um, And there's a tendency to imagine morality as a set of rules or assenting ideas that we'd all just kind of agreed to. But it's so much more than kind of this mentality that we find ourselves in. I'm I'm a huge soccer fan, and uh, I often think of this notion when I hear soccer managers or players talk about situational soccer. And this idea is they have pre-scripted as many variables as possible to, in order to prepare, to, to have success in acting out in particular scenarios. Uh, and Paul is using a similar notion here. Uh, we're called to think morally, that is to sow the seeds of God's character in our thoughts and desires, but then we were also called to be moral, uh, encourage an inner ascent to God's character that becomes a way of life, a living out. And so Paul begins verse 9 with a series of verbs, Uh, covering all the bases, so learned or received or heard in me or seen in me, put into practice. I think that's pretty pretty all-encompassing. So uh, think, uh, you you hear learning, I think of information transference. I think hear received, I think acceptance of ideas or principles. Uh, I, I read heard, 
I hear accepting, recognizing the idea of uh, spoken words, think attentiveness, and then seeing uh, a principal lifestyle that we've all watched and observed. So virtue exemplified. So that's a kind of a quick uh, peppering of all those ideas, but ultimately it boils down to this. Whatever falls into any way you could observe a person, thinking, observing, hearing, listening, watching, whatever words you want to come up with, it falls into these categories. And we are called to practice morality. Make it habitual, make it sincere and genuine. And then the last phrase of the verse is a, a fitting culmination of a virtuous life. The, the God of peace will be with you. You know, it's, uh, we've mentioned this in, in, in previous discussions of the text, uh, but there's a temptation to think that we can find peace in other places. But realize, and don't buy into that lie, because all other peace that we might achieve is merely a shadow or a counterfeit of the peace found only in God, the true peace that comes only from Him. So, what are your daily routines or habits or way of life that proclaims your Christianity? Or maybe I should ask, what do your routines and way of life declare? Uh, I think many of us bought in, have bought into the lie that some parts of our life are neutral or harmless or our very own. They're, they're, they're our life, they're not necessarily directly uh, contributing to the kingdom work. Uh, but that's not exactly true, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, either you've been duped or you've duped yourself into thinking that parts of your life are sealed off from, from Christ and his lordship. There's no part of you your habits, your life, your possessions, your family, your goals, your desires, no part that's sealed off from God and the gospel. He owns it all. So, what does your life display? You know, we are God's image bearers. It's such a powerful idea. And whether we like it or not, we declare God to the created order. That's what it means to be an image bearer. We bear out God's image to the world. So there's a question then, what image of God do you declare? Is it an accurate image? Or is it an inaccurate image of God? What does your life declare? Uh, you know, please don't confuse the process I'm describing here. I've done my best to deal with a list that was intimidating to me. Uh, I'm not saying that Scripture declares some kind of step-by-step moralism, that we need to follow these rules. It's not some kind of new legalism that I'm trying to bring down from Scripture. Uh, What it is, is the gospel declares a truth about us. There is a change of disposition before God, but there is also a response that's fitting for us in light of what God has done for us. And there are things we have to just do by the power of grace and the power of the Spirit, but we must do them. Don't be fooled. Uh, we're tempted to believe in a life that's free of moral standards, will lead us to happiness and lead us to peace. No, in fact, a life lived according to God's righteousness, to virtue, that brings peace. It also begs the question, what spiritual disciplines are you cultivating right now? Uh, what sins are you active, actively killing or mortifying, to use a theological idea, right now? Uh, there's a, a prominent Puritan theologian who, who puts it this way, very simply. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. There are no, there's no middle ground. 
the text here uh, is so much about so much more than being a good person, being okay with other people, and just thinking what's marginally okay. You know, I think of the powerful role that media plays in our life. Uh, I'm doing a part of my research and my PhD is, is dealing with the role of media in changing and warping the way we think morally. And so this, in many ways, I, I kind of loved this study because it gave me a chance to reflect on how powerful social media, television, internet, video games, pornography, the list goes on and on, how powerful media, that kind of mediation is in our lives. Yet it raises a question, how important is the media of God to you? So realize Jesus Christ was a mediation. He's the mediator. We think of the text in Scripture, Jesus Christ, the mediator between God and man. The Word of God. It's a mediation of, of God's character to us. How important is the media of God in your life? How much of a fixture is it in your existence? Is the media of this world, this mediation of the world, more important to you? Does it define more of your morality than God himself? Living virtuously together brings God's peace over our individual and corporate lives. Allow God's peace to rule over you. Several ways. First, by focusing our mind on God's character. And secondly, by living out God's character. Through this, our lives will be marked by the God of peace. You know, growing up, my father was very prone to quote what I think, I imagine, is a well-known progression to me, but it's always stuck with me. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a, sow a character, reap a destiny. What is your destiny? Let's pray. Father, you're so faithful to us and kind to us to reveal yourself to us. Not only to reveal what you are like, but to reveal what you require of us. It's been remarkable to examine these verses today in Philippians chapter 4, calling us to think a particular way, to, to define this very seed of our being by your character. Seems so daunting and impossible. <laughs> And it is, alone, and apart from you, but you have given us your spirit, you have declared truth to us, so we seek to define ourselves by your character, and we seek to live out your character in the world to your good creation. I pray that we would bear your image rightly and well and accurately to the world, and I pray that you would bless your word in our lives this morning, guide us. Direct us and keep us, because we ask in Jesus' name, amen.